Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. He and I will be your guide every Tuesday to a grace-infused, cosmopolitan look at the lectionary passages for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the never-changing truth of God's grace as found in these texts with what feels like an ever-changing and sometimes confusing world, and we'll do that all in 25 minutes or less. He's making a list and checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Angry Jesus is coming to town because it's Christmas. That's right. It's time to get it together. Why aren't you working in a soup kitchen? Quit man-spreading all over the place. Jesus is angry. Wrong. Wear, deo- wear deodorant when you go to the homeless shelter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just kidding. Um, don't, uh, don't dress down just because you're helping poor people. That's right. Well, this, uh, this uh, particular uh, reading uh, or, or episode goes out to our number one listener, uh, David Zoll. Yeah, dedicated to David. Yeah, absolutely. And, really and, and of course, we were. Who's, he's a big fan of the show. Big fan of the show. And of course, we are actually caricaturizing Jesus as Santa Claus because mm-hmm. it's very, it's very interesting that like we take like someone who, despite having punched Arius at the Council of Nicaea, seemed to be a pretty decent guy, gave, you know, giving gifts to children and a generous soul, and we make him into the embodiment of the law and That's the right. accusatory force of reality. You know, it's actually interesting you bring this up. I was on a, a Facebook the other day and I have a friend who I used to do youth ministry with like 15 years ago. And uh, he's, a, he's a pastor of a huge Baptist church now in Virginia. And he said, but, what? You're, but, you're, but you repeat yourself. Yeah. <laughs> huge uh, Baptist church in Virginia. Yeah. So anyway, but he said um, that um, he wanted to know... Um, like where uh, Santa Claus fits into the service. And a bunch of people were like, nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. And I was like, actually, I mean, if you know who he is, St. Nick, he's actually a defender of the faith and one who laid his life down for the gospel. Uh, Word on the street is actually that Diocletian carved out one of his eyes. And so um, he was- I hate Diocletian. Oh, Diocletian is the worst. So um, anyway- we come to Christmas Eve here tonight, and our first uh, reading is in the Old Testament, in the lectionary text, is from Isaiah chapter 9. Yeah, great, great text. I mean, they're all great texts because they're inspired, right? I mean, mm. but, but, but in, on some level, you know, this is uh, just, it's a wonderful text. It opens up, and it's really a word of hope and comfort to people. Assyria is at the door, and um, people are wondering where and what is God doing? And here God delivers a word of comfort through the prophet. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. And in the midst of that, you know, you have to wonder, what is God doing? And, uh, and really, you know, as we transition out of Advent into Christmas, we begin to see that God has fulfilled that promise in the person and work of Jesus Christ in his first coming as he went into the land of Capernaum. And Matthew chapter 4 uh, quotes this passage as a fulfillment of that in the person of Jesus. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that passage concludes, 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And like, you know, you think of zeal or passion, and it literally is the passion of the Lord. I mean, that that the establishment of the kingdom is literally the Lord's zeal or his passion, but not just passion, but passe, as in the Latin, suffered. So, mm. the, Lord, the Lord's passion and his ability to experience passe, suffering, are one and the same. He's not the unmoved mover. He's the most moved. That's mover. right. Uh, you know, Luther, he, uh, he preached on this and, um, uh, for one of his Christmas sermons. And he says, uh, in regards to Luther, uh, Luther says in regards to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he says, The first thing we need to learn in this prophecy of Isaiah is that a child is born to you and, as, and is your child. We must accentuate the word us and write it large. That is, when you hear a child has been born to us, make the two letters us as large as heaven and earth and say, the child is born. It is true, but for whom is he born? Unto us, for us he is born, says the prophet. Luther continues, God allowed this child to be born for the sake of condemned and lost sinners. Therefore, hold out your hand, lay hold of it, and say, True, I am godless and wicked. There is nothing good in me, nothing but sin, vice, depravity, death, devil, and hellfire. Against all this, however, I set this child whom the Virgin Mary has in her lap and at her breast. For Mm. since he is born for me, that he might be my treasure. I accept this child and set him over against everything I do not have. I uh, personally recommend that you preach this uh, and quote this Luther text at your children's sermon. Tell the kids, you are godless, wicked, and there is nothing good in you but sin, vice, and depravity, and death. And uh, the kids will love it. I like that. Straight up, man. That's straight up gospel truth. It is really. I mean, this is this is the whole thing. Is that I think with all of the uh, commercialism of Christmas and stuff like that, it's really easy to set this out over here, and uh, you know the nativity scene is over there, and this is over there. It's off in the distance. But what we don't realize is that this promise of Jesus is for us. It is for you right there in the pew, in your suffering and in your sin, God is coming to you. And it's personal. That's what makes it so amazing. It's, it's interesting, too, that Isaiah, when they see the great light, they, the text says they rejoice uh, before, they, they rejoice as, with joy at the harvest, and they exult as people when they're dividing plunder. As C.S. Lewis says in his book reflections on the psalms which is just such a great awesome little little book i mean so good yeah it's amazing this is the most obvious fact about praise whether of god or anything strangely escaped me (laughs) i i had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless sometimes even if shyness or the fearing or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into into check it In other words, when you enjoy something, you have to praise it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, children, flowers, mountains. I had not noticed how the humblest, at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. The good Mm. critic found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy 
and unaffected man could praise a very modest meal. The, the dyspeptic and the snob found fault with all. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. And I think that's, it's, it's interesting because the, I think the, the gospel, what it takes root in us, frees us to praise it, like, it, it almost a way that makes us look silly at times. And I think that, and he is right, when you see a great movie or read a great book, it's, the experience is not complete until you've praised it to somebody. You yeah, to, like, that's right. And I think actually what the law does is constricts praise. <laughs> it, mm. it, make, it makes us like the critics that tell us we can only read these books and enjoy them and, and cannot, find, you know, I think that uh, where their spirit of Christ is, there is freedom. Mm. Come down to the manger little stranger wrapped in swaddling load the prince of peace the wheels start turning all right man so here we go on to titus titus chapter two um you know, Titus is uh, one of these interesting books. It belongs to First um, and Second Timothy, and then there's Titus. These are the pastoral epistles. These are the epistles, you know, the other epistles that St. Paul wrote are directed towards specifically churches. These are directed towards individuals. And uh, this is a very powerful, um, I think, articulation of the effect of the incarnation in our life. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. St. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. That's the key thing when you hit on this. Don't go into right up, when you're preaching this text, you don't want to run right into training to renounce impiety and worldly passions in this present age, to live lives of self-controlled. Everybody wants to like focus on that and, be, you know, and you can take this text and you can turn it into a complete passage of law and miss the point for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all. You know, that is the key word. That is the first word that everything else flows out of. This is the work of the incarnation in our life. As uh, one of my favorite patristic church fathers said, St. John of Christostom, he said, only Christ can make our inward heart fit to see God. And this is the work of the incarnation in our life. This passage, in light of that, is pres- is descriptive, not prescriptive. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it, it says that the grace of God is what leads us into true freedom, not the law. I mean, and, and that's just true. You can pass a law that says, you know, don't do steal all these and, things. Yeah. Or don't do them. And, 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 you know, it might stop me from stealing because I'm, fra- I'm afraid of the punishment that comes or... Or the shame that going to jail will, you know, bring upon me. But you can never pass a law against the sense of avarice or entitlement that leads you to steal. Like, if the law is powerless in that regard. Later on, after Jean Valjean's conversion in Les Miserables, he sings, My soul belongs to God, I know. I made that bargain long ago. And I think that there's this sense in which what teaches Jean Valjean the freedom of the life of love is not pursuing the the desire to pursue the life of love. It's being pursued. It's being imputed. That's <laughs> it's right. when the it's when the priest treats That's him so as good. someone he's not, and when he realizes his own poverty in in regards to the human condition, where his own humanity is taken into account, and that it's it's reflection on his his own poverty and neediness and the imputation, the, the treating him as the wonderful guest 
when he was the thieving, <laughs> corrupt guest in, in the in the Monsignor's home. That actually is the continue, and you don't graduate from that. Like That's you, right. you, it's 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 once for all, and again and again, the gospel is what instructs us on the good life, never the law. I love it. And, and Paul wraps this up. So, you know, it brings us back for a brief moment. You're on, you're in Christmas Eve. You're not quite to Christmas yet. You're in Christmas Eve. And he brings us back to this idea of Advent. This is what God is doing in us while we wait for that blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The idea that Paul is getting, trying to get across to Titus is he came once He's definitely coming again. And that is like really good news. And that is really hope in the midst of despairing when you want to give it all up. And then he reminds us once again of the gospel here in Titus. He takes us back to the gospel. He it is who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. This is God's work first. And his work in us makes us zealous for good deeds. It's not you do good deeds to get the rose. Um, it's you get the rose first, to quote the bachelor or bachelorette. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. I don't recommend it at all. But most of those episodes are the most awkward and awful dates I have ever seen on television in the bachelor or bachelorette. But How many dates in, have you seen on television? Well, I've seen quite a few. And so, but the point is, is that in The Bachelor or Bachelorette, every time the rose ceremony is at the beginning of the episode as opposed to the end, they have the most normal dates ever. And this is the powerful thing what Titus is saying is that you in the gospel have been given the rose right at the beginning. This is, Jake, this is the money illustration right here. You have been given. The bachelor. And Christmas, just remember, with the birth of this baby, Jesus Christ, you have been given the rose right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. So live your life zealous for good deeds. Which takes us to the Gospel of Luke. Amen. This right is Right at awesome. the beginning. We're right at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke here. I've been thinking about this, you know, and I heard one of my, um, one of my colleagues, and, and she said a very powerful thing. And she said, you know, nobody, when they were writing the Gospels, thought that there would be four. You know, I mean, this is the one, you know, this was the one that they thought they were getting. And, and it's very powerful here, this, this, this Gospel of uh, Luke and the, and the birth narrative. We have, we're told that right from the beginning in verses 1 through 14, basically, that Joseph and Mary go down to, um, to uh, Caesar Augustus calls, uh, calls for, um, what is it called? Uh, a census. A census. Hey, Jake, yeah. Can I, can I say, can I, uh, rather than... Sorry, I'm just you, on a rant. No you're, no, you're on fire, but can I say, like, rather than you or I set the tone, let us go to your fellow churchman, Nicholas Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. And he says this in his book, The Cross and the Glory. In those days, says Luke, there went out a decree from the Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
These words have become so well-known through constant repetition in carol services that we may perhaps be forgiven for not stopping to reflect on what Luke is trying to tell us here and throughout his work. In one short paragraph, he moves from the great emperor in Rome to the new king who was to rule the world. There is no question for Luke as to which one makes the angels sing. As we look at this story, which we know so well, and yet so little, we may catch a glimpse of what we might mean when we say, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. By the time Jesus was born, Augustus had already been monarch of all he surveyed for a quarter of a century. He was king of kings, ruling a territory that stretched from Gibraltar to Jerusalem, from Britain to the Black Sea. He had done what no one had done for 200 years before him had achieved. He had brought peace to the whole wider Roman world. Peace, I grant you, at a price, a price paid in cash by subjects in far-off lands and in less obvious ways by those who mourned the old republic. Power was now concentrated in the hands of one man whose kingdom stretched from shore to shore. And as Arnaldo Mamagliano, one of the greatest ancient historians, says, or once put it, Augustus gave peace as long as it was consistent with the interests of the empire and the myth of his own glory. There you have it in a nutshell, the whole ambiguous structure of human empire, a kingdom of absolute power, bringing glory to the man at the top and peace to those on whom his favor rested. You know, it's really interesting when I, when I heard you reading that, I thought of the picture of um, uh, president elect Trump and Melania and their son uh, Baron, and he's sitting on a lion. But there they are in this like gold enthroned room um, at the top of Trump Tower, and uh, it's 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 a, it's an epic scene to quote my son. And uh, but here we have the Son of God being born in the middle of nowhere, in the armpit of the Roman Empire, and his conquering. Yeah, and, and it's interesting too because Wright points out that this man, this king. This absolute monarch lifts his little finger in Rome, and 1,500 miles away in an obscure province, a young couple undertakes a hazardous journey, (laughs) resulting in the birth of a child in a little town that just happens to be the one mentioned in the ancient Hebrew prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And it is at this the angels sing of glory and peace, which is the reality and which is the the parody. (laughs) It's it's. It's powerful. I mean, this is, you cannot make this up. You cannot make this up. And the truth is, is that God has condescended himself into human history. This isn't, I just saw Rogue One, which is awesome for the record. Uh, Rogue One, uh, I think, will rival Empire Strikes Back as the best Star Wars of all time. That's, 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 that's big talk. That's big talk. And I'm putting my money where my mouth is. And I'm willing to bet Logos that Rogue One is better than uh, Empire Strikes Back. It is so good. I don't know how they got it past Disney. But nevertheless, I digress. Rogue One, every Star Wars movies opens up in a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But this is happening bang in human history. God is condescending himself and entering into human history. And there, in the midst of his birth, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, are shepherds who are keeping watch over their flock. And it says, the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. These aren't little kids dressed up as cherubs. This is some serious stuff going down in the middle of nowhere 
in Bethlehem. Yeah. And you know, we, we've talked about like from time to time, we want to recommend some preaching resources. And I, and the guy who has helped me see some of the truth of what you're saying, maybe best is Benedict the 16th. He'll always be Ratzinger to me, <laughs> but, but I love uh, that we're quoting him on the show. So well, his, good. his, his books on the gospels are one of the best things I've ever read. He was, the, his, he was the, he was, he was the last great, I think really, truly Catholic Pope they've ever had. Well, what about Francis? I like no, Francis. Francis, Francis, you like him, but he's not really a Catholic Pope. I mean, this he's guy, Catholic. come on. No, no, no. Well, we'll talk about this in another show, but I'm just saying like Benedict, like, dude, he was old school. No, I he mean, was old school. Like, if, if, was it old wasn't, school. if the UN wasn't around, he'd definitely be burning heretics. It was up to him. We're cutting that out. <laughs> We're cutting that out. All right. All right. That's okay, though. We, you know. So, you know, Benedict in his book on the infancy narratives points out that um, the child who's wrapped in these bandages uh, in the swaddling, it, a lot of the church fathers saw that as prefiguring his death and seeing the manger as a kind of altar. And uh. he says, he talks about how Augustine drew the meaning of this out because the manger is the place where, of course, animals find their food. It's a trough. Mm. And he says, but now lying in the manger is he who called himself the true bread come down from heaven, the true nourishment that we need in order to fully be ourselves. This is the food that gives us true life, eternal life. Thus, the manger becomes a reference to the table of God, to which we are invited so as to receive the bread of God. From the poverty of Jesus' birth emerges the miracle in which man's redemption is mysteriously accomplished. The manger, as we have seen, indicates animals who come to it for their food. In the gospel, there is no reference to animals at this point. But he says, and this is a gem, he says, if you look at prayerful, if you prayerfully reflect, reading the Testaments together, you see in Isaiah 1.3, this text, the ox knows its owner and the ass its master's crib, <sighs> but, it, but Israel does not know. God. My people does not understand. And he, he talks about the, the, uh, this notion that in the midst of two living creatures, you'll be recognized when the time has come, you'll you appear in Habakkuk 3.2. And he thinks there, the reference is, is, pro- is probably to the cherub, the angels at the, on, the, on the top of the ark. But then he says, through this remarkable combination of Isaiah 1.3, Habakkuk 3.2, Exodus 25.18-20, and the manger, the two animals now appear as an image of a hith to blind humanity, which now, before the child, before God's humble self-manifestation in the stable, has learned to recognize him, and in the lowliness of his birth receives the revelation that now teaches all people to see. Christian iconography adopted this motif at an early stage. No representation of the crib is complete without ox and ass. And he says that basically ox and ass represent Jews and Gentiles mm. to, together. That's powerful. Looking, ah. adoring, you know, or looking adoringly, if a little ignorantly, I, at the one who would procure their own redemption. I just want to say that this episode is probably the most ecumenical Mockingbird has ever become. There you go. That's the Christmas it, spirit. But before we close, I do want to say one thing that every preacher probably needs to get across. And that is what the message of the angels actually was, because this is the word from God. Angels are messengers of God, and that is glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. 
Yes. And this is the idea that God has come not to lay the sword of Damocles, not to check if you've been naughty or nice, so you better be good for goodness sake. But God has come in this Christ child to say peace to you. Peace to you, especially who are naughty. Peace to you, especially who have been bad. Peace to you, especially to those of you who deserve coal in your stocking. This is the message of God to you tonight. So just be good. Or doubt. Just don't even so go just, there. No, no. So, um, so don't worry about being good for goodness sake. Not at all. Because we have the gospel. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, head on over to our website, mbird.com. And if you've got thoughts or feedback, insights you'd like to share, this is a new endeavor, so we'd love to hear them. You send me an email at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.